Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read beginning in verse 3 down through verse 18. And as Josh said earlier in the reading of Scripture, this is the word of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's hear it together. Philippians 1 and verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let's pray. Father, would you please come by your spirit and teach us. This is your word. It is alive. It is powerful. It is your voice speaking to us in this and every generation. Speak, Lord, your servants, your sons, and your daughters here. In Jesus' name, amen. As was mentioned earlier, the book of Philippians is largely about a quest for joy. I think there are 16 or 18 times in these four chapters where we see the words joy or rejoice or rejoicing written by the pen of the Apostle Paul. It is, it is a call to us in knowing, in trusting, in serving, in, in, being, in loving and being loved by Jesus to, to experience Jesus in such a way that we rejoice in the Lord. Paul says that in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. It seems to me that Paul means 
means this. He wants us to get this. This is important to Paul, that we be men and women who enjoy God, who find joy in God, live in the joy of our relationship with Christ. That isn't always easy. We live in a broken world. We live in a messed up world. It can be very discouraging, very disheartening. We want to love Christ. We want to know Christ. We want to imitate Christ. We want to serve Christ. We want to proclaim Christ. We want to live Christ. But we're doing all of this and experience and pursuing all of this in a world that in truth and reality hates Christ. Not easy. And when we are linked at times with other Christians in a small church and in a very big world, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like we are uh, nothing, that we can accomplish nothing, that we can do nothing, that we can be nothing. And I think God has something for us this morning from this text, from this part of God's word. I I know what it's like is... Those of you who've been around the last couple of days will already know. I know what it's like to to serve and minister for a long time in a small context, a small congregation seeming to make very little dent for God in this world, and yet somehow finding joy in it all. My, My sermon title this morning is Finding Joy in Something Bigger Than Me. Finding joy in something bigger than me. This is, this is an extraordinary passage of scripture here in that it does indicate just this. Paul, in the midst of incredibly adverse and difficult circumstances, went on rejoicing. He found joy in something outside of himself. He he calls himself in verse 1 a servant of Christ Jesus. He he realized that one of his primary, primary aspects of his identity as a man was servant of Jesus Christ. But this was not a slavish servanthood. This was not a grudging servanthood. This was not a, a hesitant servanthood. This was not a forced or coerced servanthood. This was a happy servanthood, even when things got very difficult for him. So what I want us to do is I want to trace out from the text, first of all, just what exactly is happening here, and then draw from the text what I think would be three or four principles for our lives and for our ministry and for your life together as a church. So uh, just follow for the next few minutes as we, as we take a good look at the text, try to get an overview of what's going on here to make sure that what we apply at the end is actually rooted in the text and not me just making it up as I go along. So let's, let's begin by just taking a look at this. Paul is in jail. We see this in verses 12 and 13. He speaks there of his imprisonment for Christ. This is probably the imprisonment that's talked about in Acts 28, where he's in Rome. He's been put in jail. It's a kind of house arrest, but that may sound like something less Uh, ugly than prison arrest, but a house arrest is house arrest. You're in the same place, chained to a Roman soldier for at least two years. And he's in 
jail. He's under arrest over a long period of time because of his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Way back in Jerusalem, he had preached the gospel. He had offended the religious leaders. They had accused him falsely of stirring up controversy and and of taking many followers from the faith. And so they charged him with troublemaking. They charged him with desecrating the Jewish customs and temple. And after a series of appearances in court and appeals, and it was very clear they weren't going to let up. They weren't going to let him off the hook. So his only recourse at that point was to appeal to Caesar. And so he appeals to Caesar. They put him on a ship. And you know the story in Acts 27 and 28, the shipwreck and all the things. It seemed like no matter where Paul went, trouble followed him. He was always having hardship. And, and so they ship him off to Rome. And now he's been sitting in jail for a couple of years awaiting his trial. It may be here in Philippians 1. It actually seems that the trial actually has already happened. And he's just waiting for the verdict. He's not sure what's going to happen. He thinks, read a little bit further on in chapter 1, he thinks like he's going to be released, but he's not certain of that. And it's in that context that he speaks his famous words, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no better state of mind and heart to be in than that. To live is Christ, meaning what? My whole life is defined by Jesus Christ. He is the one I love. He is the one I serve. He is the one I want to be like. He is the one I want to follow. He is the one I want to proclaim. To live is Christ. I live in the joy of knowing him, that I may know him, chapter 3, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I mean, that's a no-lose place to be. Living is Jesus, dying is gain. Living is joy. See, Paul was anticipating heaven and the life after this life, not because he was sick and tired of this world, not because he was sick and tired of this life. He wasn't. To live is Christ. He was enjoying it. He was full of joy in this life. But he wanted heaven, death is gain, because, well, heaven's better than this life. This life is good in Christ. It's even better with Christ. And, and so Paul is in this amazing state of mind where, you know, in reality, this is the ultimate secret of all joy right here. If, if we can get somewhere close to where Paul is, we become invincible, unshakable fortresses of faith where we, we are in Christ, enjoying Christ. And the worst that can happen to us is that we die and go to be with Christ. Not a bad place to be. Paul was living in the good of this. And yet, at the same time, he was sitting in jail for two years. At the same time, He was chained to a Roman soldier day after day after day. At the same time, he had been put on the ministry shelf, by and large, for these couple of years. And and he's not sure whether he's going to be released. He's not sure whether he's going to live beyond a few more weeks or months. And yet, he says in verse 18, I rejoice. 
I rejoice. Now, why? What explains the joy of a man held in jail for two years under bogus charges, awaiting a verdict that might include his death sentence? Here's what explains it. Paul was aware that the things that had happened to him had resulted in the advance of the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The Greek word speaks of a pioneer advance of the gospel. The gospel has gone where it's never gone before because of the things that have happened to me, referring to his imprisonment and his trial. He says, I want you to know this, brothers, that these hard circumstances, these difficult circumstances, these, these strange and confusing circumstances, why would God put his best man in jail? Why would God allow his best preacher to be put on the shelf for two years? Why would God do this? Paul says, don't worry about it, folks. It has served the advance of the gospel. Now, now, how did that happen? Well, it happened in three ways, according to the text. First of all, the gospel advanced through his actual imprisonment and the trial itself. We see this in verse 13. It, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What Paul is saying here is, is that the whole trial proceedings and the court proceedings have, have been used by God as a platform for the gospel. So his accusers stand up and Caesar stands up and says, now defend yourself. So what does Paul do? He said, well, I am here in the words of Acts. I am here because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I am here because Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, became man and he lived among men and he died for men. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and he was ascended and he is Lord. Not you, Caesar. He is Lord. And he is coming back for his people and all those who repent of their sins and trust in him as Savior and Lord will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the gospel was preached in the courtroom, a place where, well, how else do you get the gospel to Caesar's household other than maybe being in Caesar's household for a while? God used his imprisonment for the advance of the gospel. Another way the gospel advanced was through the emboldened witness of sincere believers. The emboldened witness of sincere believers. Verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The language here is emphatic. Believers had become much bolder to preach the gospel. They, their, their boldness, their, their, their courage for evangelism and preaching had, had just got ratcheted up tenfold, a hundredfold because of the example of his courage. They saw him willing to suffer and they became willing to suffer themselves. They saw him daring to preach and risk everything. And it, it stirred many of the people of God to preach and risk everything. You might call this ministry multiplication through subtraction. 
Paul gets subtracted from the ministry equation and it multiplies others. There's, there's an amazing effect, isn't there? When we hear the story of a courageous Christian, an amazing impact on my heart when I hear such stories, it stirs me to greater courage. Like, like this story I read a little while ago about a man, uh, a believer named Hussein. Hussein was drawn to Christ through the faith of his parents and, and the joy of the church. When he first attended a Christian church in his native land of Turkey, he responded, I felt so alive hearing the hymns and the singing of the church. And he came to a full saving faith in Christ. And he grew, he grew eager to share the gospel with others. He was still a student in his school, so he, it seemed a good place to start to proclaim the gospel. So he decided to wear a cross to school to provoke questions and conversations with his fellow students. The response was anything but positive. Over a period of two years, he was spat upon, sworn at, called an infidel, taunted, punched, beaten with sticks, pelted with stones, dragged along the ground, repeatedly beaten by school authorities and threatened with his life. And here's Hussein's response. Christ said we would suffer for him. It's okay to suffer for Christ. And we should be happy to suffer for Christ. The Lord is with me. I should tell you, Hussein is 11 years old. 11 years old. If you can hear that and not be stirred, what courage, what faith. Last week, an NBA professional basketball player came out of the closet as homosexual and, and there was an ESPN reporter who I heard his, I heard he was asked a question what he thought about this development and, and this ESPN reporter had an amazing, I don't know if any of you have seen this, an amazing response. It was a response full of grace and gospel and, and, and offering the mercy of God, but at the same time, calling sin, sin. It was very wise response. It didn't highlight just homosexuality as somehow or other a, a, a more grievous sexual sin than other sins. He, he mentioned fornication and adultery and pornography. He said, these are all sins. And, and anyone who practices these things without repenting is cannot be a Christian, cannot be right with God. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, this guy's losing his job. In this culture, in this context, he, he, he's going to be out of a job. And he's no dummy. He knew the risk that he was taking and saying what he did. And I, and I watched this and I said, I want to be like that man. I want that kind of courage, not because I want to bash anyone, because, but because I want to speak the truth of Christ and, and proclaim the gospel of Christ with a kind of fearless indifference to what man can do to me. When we hear and see examples of courage, it, it stirs us. And that's what happened to these believers. So they were, the gospel went forward because sincere believers saw Paul's example and said, I want to be like that. But there was a third way the gospel went forward, and that was through insincere 
self-serving believers. You notice that, right? As we were reading verses 14 through 18 there, there were those who, who did it out of goodwill. They preached Christ. But in verse 15, some indeed preached Christ from envy and rivalry. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You see, there were, there were some preachers of the gospel who were looking at the situation and the landscape and saying, okay, Paul's in jail right now. That means I can get some of his followers to join my church. I can, I can preach the gospel. I can gain influence. I can gain acclaim at his expense. You've got to understand that Paul had, Paul had gone into Rome after other preachers and churches had already been established in the city. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'd be a little threatened by Paul moving next door with his church. You know, it's like, it's like having Billy Graham or, or, you know, John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or John Piper set up church two doors away. And, you know, let's face it, there's, there's, there's at least a little temptation there to say, that, uh, this isn't fair. You know, this isn't fair. And they, some of these preachers of the gospel in Rome were, were tempted that way and falling victim to the temptation and giving into the temptation and out of rivalry and, and dissension and, and insincere agendas. They were preaching for their own agenda rather than Christ. But you know, look what, look what happens. Paul doesn't call them out. Paul doesn't name them. Paul doesn't, he, he, you know what he says? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. You see, Paul is saying here, at any cost that it might bring my way, at any loss that it might entail for me, at any cross I may have to bear by way of jail time or people's taking follower, people taking followers away from me, that's all irrelevant. The gospel is what it's about. All I care about is that Jesus is preached. He didn't care who got the credit. He didn't care who got the fame or the acclaim. He just wanted Jesus to be famous. He just wanted the gospel to be proclaimed. And so through the the trial, the gospel was preached through the example of his courage, sincere believers preached. And because he was bound up in jail, insincere believers preached And Paul says, it doesn't matter to me how it happens. All that matters to me is that it happens. I want the gospel preached, and in this I rejoice, and I will rejoice. And he says, I want you to know, the gospel is making inroads where it's never been before. Can I just pause right here and say this, brothers and sisters? Never question God's trials and the plans that he has for you in your life. Never never look at your circumstances and say, this has to be wrong. This must be a mistake. God can't make anything good come out of this. No, God is in a the constant business of making good come out of bad, of making good come out of hard, of making good come out of difficult. Just like he made the gospel advance by putting his best preacher in jail. 
God can make the gospel and grace and growth and holiness and joy advance in your life by putting you in the, in the prison of some kind of affliction, some kind of trial, some kind of difficulty. What, what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. God, it seems, almost always works that way in his, his most God-glorifying Acts. It is when God takes what is bad, something like the cross, and turns it into something incredibly good. It's who God is. And so if you're here this morning, just at a personal level, you're carrying a weight of trial and affliction and hardship. I, I want you to hear this word. Do not curse the trouble. Do not mourn with, it's okay to mourn, but don't mourn without hope in the difficulty or in the loss. Keep your hope in God, for he is the God who turns ashes into beauty. He is the God who, who causes fresh life to emerge from, the, from the, the soot and the soil of a charred over life of, of affliction and trial. He, he is the God who though there may be sorrow that lasts for a nighttime, promises joy in the morning. That's who he is. Paul saw this, and Paul was blessed by this. Now, this is, this is the circumstances. This is what's going on here. And now, quickly, and I think I took too long on that part, but quickly, let's see if we can draw from this three or four principles for our lives. And I'm going to... Here's the first principle. Joy comes in being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Joy comes in being a part of something bigger than ourselves. This, this, is a, this is a basic human dynamic that anyone who observes human nature and human experience can, can tell you. Jesus caught it in his, his little statement, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The core of that statement from Jesus is this. There is more blessedness. There is more joy in reaching outside of yourself than in staying inside of yourself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is simply a happier life if it's lived outside of self. The most miserable people on the planet are the ones who can't get themselves off themselves. They are totally self-absorbed. But if you lose yourself in something bigger than yourself, you find joy. And if that is true at even a basic level, if joy comes in being part of something bigger than ourselves, how do we get to maximum joy? I suggest it's by being part of the biggest thing going. Let's, let's get involved in, in that which is the, 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 the biggest cause, the, the biggest movement, the biggest, uh, the biggest agenda 
in the universe the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, in this, verse 18, in this I rejoice. In what, Paul? In the preaching of the gospel, in the proclamation of the gospel. But Paul, you're in jail. In this I rejoice. I am a part of something bigger than my present circumstances. I'm part of something bigger than my present crisis. I am a part of the advance of the kingdom of God, the proclaiming of the gospel of God. And no prison, no trial, no possible death sentence, not even the selfish insincere ministry of people alongside of me can quench the joy that I have. I'm part of something bigger than me. Joy comes by being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Maximum joy comes by being part of the greatest thing going. The kingdom advance of the gospel and fame of Jesus Christ. Friends, what you, what you are doing in this church is big. You are part of something massive. And I know at times you look around and you say, well, where, where's the massive in this? Where's, where's the big in this? Well, the big is in the one, the two, the three, the five the 10 that are converted and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. The big is in the marriage that's rescued from divorce. The big is in the child who was wandering and becoming a prodigal, but who is prayed through and drawn back to Christ because of the body of Christ in this place. The big is that man or that woman or that young person who's depressed and, and, and thinking about taking his life or taking her life and, and some brother or sister, some adult comes alongside of that young person and puts their arm around them and says, Jesus does in fact love you. Hang in there. And that young person changes his mind or changes her mind. That's big. That's big. A life saved, a soul rescued from hell, being a part of something bigger than ourselves starts right here in the church. It starts right here where we are. Joy comes in being part of something bigger than ourselves. Let me, let me move on. Second principle, what we are a part of is a partnership. What we are a part of is a partnership. Paul was pleased to work with others and to have others carrying on the work in his absence. The the Philippians were partners with him. We read that. He thanked God for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You read down through Philippians and there are all these partnership terms like fellow worker and fellow soldier and serve with and stand side by side with and be of one mind and fellow soldier and fellow worker. These these are all partnership words. And it and it means this, that, that Christians are, are meant to be a part of something bigger themse- than themselves, but along with others. It's always a partnership. 
You don't find any Lone Ranger Christians in the New Testament. They're, they're, they're going out two by two or, they're, or they're, they're linking up as local churches and they're in teams and there are these, these wonderful cooperation of many churches. It's, it's just an amazing thing to, to read through the New Testament. Read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 sometimes and you're, you're reading about perhaps a half a dozen churches at least that are partnering together to do amazing things for the glory of God. The... We are a part of something bigger than ourselves, and we are a part of a partnership. It's a a wonderful thing to be working alongside of others. It's a wonderful thing to be sharing in the work with others. This, two weeks ago, I received in my email a... Notice from Sovereign Grace Ministries with an attachment that was a prayer guide. And this was a prayer guide for the pastors and the leaders of Sovereign Grace as they move into uh, the first council of elders that we're going to have at the end of May. And this prayer guide was put together by your own pastor, Tim Kerr. And I'm I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you that this brother has had a powerful impact upon this family of churches through his spirit of and his ministry of prayer. He has brought something to this family of churches that was not there before, not in the same way, not to the same degree, not with the same effectiveness and the same power. And we have shared in, in the benefits of, of what God is doing in this place. We have shared in that throughout the movement and around the world. We are, we are partners together. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's a glorious thing. We're a part of something bigger than us and we're, we're partners in this. We had, I, I don't know if I said this in... I've talked so much this week that I forget who I've talked to or what I've said at this point. But we had a couple in our church in Toms River, New Jersey, Matthew and Lee Dwinnells. Did I tell this story anywhere? All right, not familiar. Uh, Matt and Lee were dear, dear couple. And, and I, had, I spent some time with them over a period of a few weeks or months getting them all ready and set up to lead our evangelism ministry. We had sat down together and talked through what we believe about evangelism, how we want to carry it out, what are our strategies going to be, how are we going to move forward. And and we had it all set, and we got it done. And the very week that we finished all this preparation, I got an email from Sovereign Grace Ministries. And the email read like this. The orphanage in Juarez, Mexico, is in need of a man to teach English and a woman who has office skills. I looked at this email, put my head down in a moment of weakness, wishing that it had not come in. Because you see, Matthew had told me two weeks before that he had a real burden to teach English. And Lee was a paralegal with all kinds of office skills. And I'm thinking, 
This email's for them. But if I send it to them, I lose my evangelism people. We have to start all over. That was a moment of temptation. Accidentally delete, you know. You know. <laughs> but I said, no. What we are a part of is bigger than us. And what we are a part of is a partnership. So I sent that email, forwarded it to Matthew and Lee. Matt and Lee sold their home, sold their business, moved to Mexico for three years to work with the orphans. While there, we're given a burden. She's Filipino. He had been in the service in the Philippines years ago. And when he was in the Philippines, he received from the Lord this just deep internal sense that he was going to go back there someday to serve Christ and to bear witness for Christ. And, and while they're in Mexico serving the orphans there, God places this burden in their souls to move to the Philippines, start an orphanage there. And they've been there ever since. And I'll tell you, we we lost dear people, but we gained great joy. We realized in that moment we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And to just hoard and, and, and hold on to money or things or people for our own sakes. To just try to build this nice little safe little secure little place for us to enjoy our relationships and, and to re- enjoy our fellowship. And not to think big, think beyond, think the glory of God, think the fame of Christ, think partnership Think being part of something bigger than us. To to fail to do that would ironically rob us of the very joy that we craved. And so we had the joy of sending them out. One of the happiest moments in our life as a church ever was the day we sent Matthew and Lee to the Philippines. Amazing moment. We were a part of something bigger than ourselves. We what we were a part of was a partnership. And there was great joy. There was great joy. Third principle. What we are a part of is more important than the part we play. What we are a part of is more important than the part we play. Still affected by that statement, I think, every time I hear it. First time I heard somebody say it, it just, it rocked me. What we are a part of is more important than the part we play. Paul cared a lot more about what he was a part of than he did about the part he played in it. I'm not reading into this. Just think about it. What part did Paul play in the advancement of the gospel in this two-year stretch? He had the part of a prisoner. He had the part of a victim. People were taking advantage of him. He had the part of, of... being a willing and potential martyr. Okay, that was his part. Yeah. Okay, other people are getting courage because I might die. That's, that, that's, that's the part I'm playing, Paul says. But see, he was, what was important to him was not the part he played, but what he was a part of. The kingdom of God and the advance of the gospel in his generation. Paul was not about making sure he got all the right parts and all the good parts. Paul was just about making sure that the gospel went forward. He had the spirit of John the Baptist. 
He must increase and I decrease. Doesn't matter what part I play. Doesn't matter what role I have. Doesn't matter what influence I have. Doesn't matter what position I have. Doesn't matter whether I become a famous preacher or this becomes a famous, powerful, influential church. It doesn't matter what part we play. It just matters that we play a part in the advance of the gospel. God loves to use people who are willing and eager to play whatever role is handed to them. And on that day, on judgment day, he's going to unveil to us all of the fruit and all of the blessing and all of the amazing results that flowed out of the little part that we played in his kingdom. These three principles, joy comes from being part of something bigger than ourselves. What we are a part of is a partnership. And what we are a part of is more important than the part we play are not just sound bites. I I see them as life-shaping. I see them as vision-casting. They're unity-producing. They're earth-shaking. They're kingdom-building realities. These these can shape how you view life. This This is how you do life. They're the stuff of which churches are built and, and the fame of Christ is advanced and people are saved and the darkness is dispelled at least a little bit more in our sad and broken world. Can I give you one last thought? There is one who took the humblest part that we might have a part in this joy. There is one who took the humblest part that we might have a part in this joy. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We get to have a part in this joy. We get to have a part in the the kingdom advance of, of the living God. We get to have a part in what God is doing because Jesus was willing to take the humblest part, the lowest part. He took the most difficult role. He who was in the form of God. That means he who existed as God on display. He who existed as the, the radiance of God. He, he who existed as, as God shining forth. He who existed in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 as the, the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, whose, the train of whose robe filled the temple, before whom the angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John tells us that the glory that Isaiah saw was the glory of Christ. That one left the throne, inhabited a manger. That one exchanged the songs of angels, holy, 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 
for the mockery and the disdain of sinners if you're the son of God come down from there. That one who inhabited glory and beauty, whose glory filled the temple. That one before whom the the angels, remember they had six wings, with two of them they flew, with two they covered their feet because, well, you cover your feet when you're in the presence of majesty. And with two they covered their eyes because even the angels cannot look into the blazing splendor of the Son of God. He left that and hung naked on a cross. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Brothers and sisters, what Paul means there is not just, well, he he submitted himself to the most excruciating kind of death that's imaginable to man, death on a cross. That's not the point. By referencing the cross, he's referencing what the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What he's saying is, Jesus did not just die, he died under the curse of God. He was damned so that we wouldn't have to be. On the cross, he experienced hell. He's the only man ever who can legitimately say that he experienced hell on earth. For he did. Every drop of the wrath of God was drunk by him. He drank the cup dry. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He was obedient to death, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the accursed death of the cross, so that we might not ever have to be cursed, so that we might never experience the cross so that we would not have to taste even one drop, even one drop of the wrath of God. So that we, instead of of landing in hell, might delight in heaven and between now and heaven be a part of something bigger than ourselves, and more wonderful than ourselves, something that would bring glory to him and joy to us right on into and throughout eternity. There's someone who played the humblest part so that we might experience the joy of this all. So here we are, humble little us, you know, in this tiny corner of the world. Um, But God's up to something, something wonderful. Here you are in your circumstances, however hard they are. God's up to something, something wonderful. Here you are as a church, looking around, thinking we're still small. It's such a struggle. How do we move forward? How do we have an impact? Be faithful. Be visionary. Be faithful. Press forward. You're a part of something bigger than you. Devote yourself to to it. Give yourself to it. Love it. Enjoy it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Throw yourself into the work of God and watch what God does. And don't care about the role you play. Always keep in mind that there was one who took the humblest role, who deserved the highest role. And have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. May we believe the gospel. May we love the gospel. May we live for the gospel. 
May we enjoy the gospel. May we enjoy Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I believe that in every child of God, somewhere down deep, there is a longing to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Sometimes, Father, we have a hard time seeing what it is and how we're supposed to fit into that big cause and holy agenda. My prayer for this congregation, its leaders, is that there would be a fresh sense of clarity, of vision, of faith, of joy, of commitment that is selfless, that is humble, that is Jesus-like, that in the end will be Jesus glorifying. May your peace, may your hope, may your faith, may your strength rest on these people, O Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.